Good morning. So as we've done before, we're going to just check in. Hey, body, good morning. And today as you check in, uh, I want you, uh, you know, as you, as you take this time to ground yourself, connect with your full whole self, think about and feel uh, and notice what is your embodied connection to the people in this room and to this place. Uh, that your connection to this place may involve a history that is recorded in the cells of your body. It may involve newness, new sensations, new reactions to this environment. Throughout this week, you are building embodied connections to the people uh, who are here with you in the Angle Institute through meals that you are sharing, through common worship where you are uh, experiencing the same reverberations of sound and making sound with the vibrations of your vocal cords harmonizing together. You are walking the same grounds. You are inhaling the same pollens from the bodies of the earth. So how does your body recognize and respond to these people around you? So just take a moment and kind of notice anything that may suggest itself in your body around those themes. I think many of you have a, a little hoard of note cards somewhere. There are others there. If anyone uh, wants some at any time, just, just grab one, move around, whatever. We're not going to um, distribute them because I think, I think folks probably have some. But just remember, again, this is a way that you can be sharing your input as we move toward the end of the week. Our focus today is from sign act to embodied prophecy. So we're going to be focusing on prophetic actions, performance, and uh, we'll, we'll notice that sometimes those are paired with prophetic oracles, words, sayings. Sometimes they sort of stand alone. And we're going to want to look at um, that relationship between word and body in the prophetic performance, as well as uh, explore the kind of multi-textured dimensions of that embodied prophecy. An outline of what we're doing today, we'll start just kind of uh, review some examples of prophetic actions that we'll come back to at the end of the lecture. We'll come back and kind of uh, flesh those out a bit more after we've reviewed some different theoretical models for how to think about those examples. And then we're going to review what have been some of the main scholarly approaches in the 20th and 21st century to studying these kinds of prophetic actions. And then we'll look at some newer integrative approaches that are drawing from, say, performance studies um, and, uh, and, and beginning to uh, offer a more rounded, a more multidimensional understanding of what's happening in these prophetic actions. Then we'll come back to reconsider the examples that we began with, and we'll look at uh, a few other kinds of prophetic actions, specifically healing and feeding narratives. According to the books that bear their names, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel did some extraordinary things at God's behest. Let us consider. The Lord commanded Isaiah to loosen the sackcloth from his hips and the sandals from his feet. 
and he walked naked and barefoot, not for a day, but for three years. Three years naked and barefoot. My feet are a little cold even just, uh, just doing that. And that's a good reminder that this was an unusual thing for Isaiah to do. We'll come back to explore that in more detail. We're told that he was to be a sign and a portent. A sign and a portent against Egypt and Ethiopia. Isaiah's naked body and bare feet presaged the bodily shame and vulnerability of a people who would be led away captive from northern Africa by the armies of Assyria. And what we know about uh, Assyrian war tactics is that they would relocate those people all over their empire. At God's command, Jeremiah paid 17 silver shekels to redeem his cousin's field. To put it in modern terms, he paid off a defaulted mortgage for a neglected property, even though it was about to be claimed by eminent domain. Under the circumstances, it wouldn't matter who held the deed, because the deed holder would be deported, and someone else would occupy the land in their place. But at God's command, Jeremiah assembled witnesses and documents and stored the deed in an earthen jar built to withstand conquest. Jeremiah's economic folly was an investment in hope that would testify to God's plan for the future of Benjamin and Judah. One day, God's people would again make their homes and their farmsteads in the land of their inheritance. Ezekiel was instructed to dramatize a siege, like a child playing at war. He would first make a drawing on clay, an ancient day etch-a-sketch of the city Jerusalem. And he would then begin to add details, siege walls, ramps, battering rams. Maybe he drew those, maybe he brought in little sticks and mud and stones to fashion those engines of siege war. And he was then to take a plate of iron and place it between himself and the city. And to set his face against the city so that he would be the army laying siege to Jerusalem. Ezekiel was then to lay, first on one side, then on the other side. Again, not for a day, not for two days. For a total of 430 consecutive days. God would bind him with cords to ensure that he did not move before those days were complete. Thus, he would bear the punishment or bear the guilt of Israel and Judah. Now, these and similar actions feature prominently in many of the most memorable vignettes, narratives in prophetic literature. And their very memorability is a key, though not a sole, component of their mediatory power. But models of prophecy that define the form 
or the content of prophecy as verbal utterance, words, or message struggle to account for such actions. At best, in these models, prophetic actions are viewed as ancillary or auxiliary to communication goals articulated in, say, an accompanying oracle. They add emphasis. They illustrate. They ornament the oracle. In these models, the actions are not significant in themselves. They have no efficacy apart from the words they support or the rhetorical goals they advance. So the next thing we'll do is review dominant scholarly approaches to this kind of prophetic action. They're frequently called symbolic actions or prophetic sign acts. And I'll highlight insights from these approaches and identify limitations and problems. We'll consider as an alternative category to symbolic action and sign act, which really emphasizes very often a kind of semiotic and rhetorical dimension. We'll consider as an alternative to that the phrasing embodied prophecy. And just play with that, see where that takes us, and try to articulate an approach that encompasses a wider range of prophetic actions and reckons more fully with their embodied character. From there, we'll return to those examples from, uh, from the Old Testament and see what happens when we look at them with fresh eyes. The first scholar, oh gosh, it says 1850. That should say 1950s. I thought I had fixed that. Okay, the first scholar whose work we're going to look at is from the 20th century, Georg Forer, German scholar, uh, whose very influential analysis of what he called symbolic actions, dating to the 1950s, gave special attention to actions that were enjoined upon the prophet by God. So we would have a narrative where the prophet is commanded by God to, uh, to do something that would impact their life, the prophet's life, in significant ways. Go take a wife. Go make a child and name your child so-and-so. Eat this. Um, such actions, including the marriages of Hosea, Hosea uh, and Isaiah, Hosea's and Isaiah's symbolic naming of their own children, Jeremiah's celibacy, Jeremiah's purchase of Hanamel's field, uh, Ezekiel's being forbidden to mourn the death of his wife. These entailed for Forer an existential commitment on the part of the prophet to the calling and the command of the deity. And through these actions, he argued, the prophets are claimed by their mission. They are bound with their whole existence to the proclamation of the divine will, whose reality and effectiveness they experience first in themselves. That sounds a lot like what we considered yesterday when we looked at these prophetic commissioning narratives. Forer argued that Israelite and Judean prophetic symbolic actions emerged out of this broader matrix of ancient Near Eastern prophecy and magical arts. But for Forer, what we see in the scriptures was ultimately differentiated from magical acts because their efficacy derived not from the prophet's actions, not from any motivation of what he called wish fulfillment that we might associate with magic, but from 
God's words and God's command, which would impel the prophetic action. To grasp why this distinction was so important for Forer, it's important to remember the trajectory we traced on Monday, the intellectual project that funded European colonialism required the denigration of native non-Christian religions, and it entailed the invention or construction of the category of magic to describe non-European religious practices and attendant beliefs in the spiritual power of material objects and rituals. This combined, as you recall, with the Reformation's rejection of Catholic ritual forms and correlate emphasis on the priority of the word. Within this framework, Christian scriptures and beliefs were viewed as the opposite of magic. And if that were so, there was no room in the Christian scriptures, including the Old Testament, for actions that might fall under this constructed rubric of magic. And therefore, actions could not be efficacious in themselves. So Forer rejects the magical in favor of the theological, opposing those categories. In his analysis, no action can be both the categorical importance of the authorizing, commanding, and guaranteeing divine word is so great that Forer calls prophetic symbolic actions words. When Ezekiel laid on his side for 430 days, that was a powerful word. Meaning for four that they are words in action, a vehicle through which God's word exercises its power. Okay. And I hope you hear in some of my critique or implied critique of Forer's model, I'm not suggesting that we begin to talk about prophetic actions as magical, because I think that term is problematic from the beginnings through its entire history. But what that term causes us to reject is the idea that prophetic action can be efficacious. And we're going to explore how in the synergy between divine word, divine action and agency, and prophetic action and agency, the efficacy emerges. A similar framework is adopted by another scholar, um, Lindblom, uh, who describes prophetic symbolic action using the Latin phrase uh, verbum visibile, a visible word, a visible word. Like for Lindblom emphasizes uh, that these actions can be efficacious because of the, uh, the agency of God's own word. And he understands the efficacy of the action, and here he distances himself a little bit from Forer, by analogy with the efficacious power of God's own direct speech, uh, such as God's, um, God's speaking in Genesis 1, let there be light, and there was light. That's an example of divine, efficacious, direct speech. Like words, for Lindblom, these actions had representational, rhetorical, and affective functions. And he takes us a step further because he says that they had the power to make the things they represented into reality. Now, another scholar, Jean-Pierre Ruiz, criticizes Lindblom's characterization of symbolic actions precisely because he characterizes, categorizes these actions as words. In so doing, he argues, Lindblom subordinates praxis to utterance, such that deeds can only be analyzed as a kind of speech act or an example or form of communication. And while that may sometimes uh, be true or gives us a, a lens to understand part of what's going on 
it's only a partial picture. The scholar who has been most influential in recent decades in analyzing uh, these kinds of prophetic actions is Kelvin Friebel. And I would say that a similar critique applies to Friebel's work. Friebel analyzes prophetic actions focusing mainly on Jeremiah and Ezekiel, so including some of the examples we've, we've kind of uh, previewed, as examples of what he calls rhetorical, nonverbal communication. Now, Friebel notes the necessary integration of verbal and nonverbal elements within all forms of communication. He notes that prophetic oral proclamation entailed movement, gesture, facial expression, modulations of volume, tone, pitch, and rate. This aspect of his analysis helpfully shifts scholarly focus from words alone to a broader appreciation of embodied communication. Now, Friebel focuses his study on those prophetic actions that he identifies as having been publicly performed with a communicative purpose. And so he excludes actions that didn't seem to have an audience. Maybe it was a private uh, action or performance. Uh, and he excludes actions that don't seem to have a directly communicative intent, such as, say, feeding someone or healing someone. And that's why we're going to look at those examples later. And with that data set in view, Friebel assumes that prophetic communication was guided always by the intention to persuade. Now, we noticed in Isaiah's commission, Isaiah was commissioned not to persuade people. Did you catch that yesterday when he's supposed to close their eyes and, and make heavy their ears and fatten their hearts? So we might wonder if that assumption um, is viable. But he says, the employment of nonverbal behavior by the prophets undoubtedly arose out of the same rhetorical motivations as did the verbal proclamation. So if a prophet is commanded by God to perform a public act and does so, we must be able to fully analyze that action by identifying its persuasive intent, its communicative force, and the message that it conveys. To describe these actions, communication theory provides Friebel with the language of sign act and he identifies the medium of the rhetoric of the sign act as primarily visual. My critique of Friebel's approach is threefold. The data set is determined by the methodology. And data that doesn't fit is excluded from consideration. This relieves the researcher from having to explain the relationship between the data that fits and the data that doesn't. And it prevents the excluded data from challenging the conclusions which appear to have been arrived at at the beginning. The methodology also presumes that communicative intent exhausts the purpose of each action. Other possibilities are not considered Yet it is possible for a performed public action to have goals and effects besides communication. The strict focus on communication yields a semiotic model in which action can only be understood in terms of what it signifies, what it means, what is its message. But publicly performed actions, I've given you a list of things they might do and be. They might be efficacious, participatory, affective, affecting the emotions. They may be transformative. As Lindblom argued, they may call a reality into being. They may constitute identity, shape a community, establish a position in relation to power. 
Victor Turner, renowned soci sociologist, emphasized the action of performance as culture making. Homi Baba, renowned post-colonial theorist, referred to performance as a breaking and remaking. Third critique, the primacy of verbal and visual media in Friebel's analysis excludes other senses. Touch, movement, smell, taste, proprioception, awareness of where is my body in this space in relation to the other things and people in this space. Nociception, the experience of pain, interoception, what do we feel in our inner organs, inside our bodies, in our guts? The complex interplay of bodily sensations and processes that are involved in the experiences of emotion. All of that is excluded when we say it is verbal and visual only. And this yields a flat and incomplete picture of the nature of prophetic action and reception and response, uh, reception of and response to prophetic action. The reduction of action's purpose to communication in Friebel's work is analogous to that subordination of action to word in the work of Lindblom and Forer. But the relationship between verbal and bodily praxis is not a hierarchical one. Where they occur together, the relationship is better conceived as synergistic. Moreover, while aspects of bodily praxis may function symbolically, for sure, the meanings we might derive from that are only part of the picture. Actions, gestures, and postures may contradict rather than support spoken words. How else would we know when someone is being ironic or sarcastic or sort of baldly lying to our faces? They may reveal information that is not yet found verbal or conscious articulation. They may bind together verbal and conscious mental states with bodily realities. Anthropologist Michael Jackson draws on studies of dance to argue that understanding of a body movement does not invariably depend on an elucidation of what the movement stands for. And he quotes another scholar. He says, as David Best puts it, human movement does not symbolize reality. It is reality. Jackson continues, to treat body praxis as an effect of semantic causes in all cases is to treat the body as a diminished version of itself. In response to the approaches of Forer, Lindblom, and Friebel, and in light of those observations by Jackson and Best from the field of anthropology and dance, I wonder if we can develop an approach that recognizes the convergence of word and deed in prophetic action without reducing or subordinating action to word. And can we recognize the frequently communicative goals of prophetic actions, I'm not denying that, while also perceiving the complex interplay of embodied components and effects that every action necessarily entails. And if we also recognize that not all prophetic action has communication as its primary goal? Can we develop a model that better accounts for the rich array of purposes and effects motivating and resulting from prophetic action? There are two scholars, uh, Johanna Erzberger 
and Diane Sharon, uh, who've done work very recently uh, that I think can help us begin to pave that path forward. Johanna Erzberger compares prophetic symbolic actions, and she does use that language of symbolic, uh, but we'll see how she inflects that a bit differently. She compares those prophetic actions to modern performance art. And while her model is primarily semiotic, she very helpfully emphasizes interaction and relationship. Interaction and relationship. She argues that these performances produce meaning by creating a special relation and consequently interaction between the artist or the prophet, the audience, and a specific public context in which they take place. So notice this is an interaction not just between the people involved, but it entails interaction with context as well. With regard to the artist or prophet, she develops a distinction that was noted earlier by Forer. While some actions uh, involve an object external to the person of the prophet, say that, you know, that iron, that little iron wall that Ezekiel set up, other actions are performed on the prophet's own person. And in so doing, she argued, the prophet may assume significant personal risk. She said, prophetic sign acts that concern the prophet's body might endanger the integrity of the prophet's body. The embodied involvement and risk of prophet and performance artists differs, she says, from that of a stage actor. Because the stage actor clearly plays a role that they can walk away from, uh, according to convention, a role that, that typically would be differentiated from their personal identity. For the prophet and artist, she says, by contrast, performance is one in which they represent themselves while simultaneously representing more than themselves. Erzberger argues that the sign act frequently also represents the audience, uh, often also in the person of the prophet, who becomes more than one player in the drama. And by this representational inclusion, she says the audience is drawn into the action and forced either to identify with one of its protagonists or to resist that identification. Audience and setting interact also in particular ways in these public performances, wherein the setting is not kind of rarefied or contained. It's not simply, um, you know, this, this uh, pavilion you go to in the, in the middle of the park. It is a space in which audience members regularly interact with one another, conduct their business, and participate together in the institutions of their common life. By occupying public, shared, populated space in this way, and that use of the word occupy makes me think of the Occupy movement, which is a claiming of space. The prophet or artist compels engagement, making it difficult for the audience fully to ignore or retreat from the performance. Diane Sharon also builds on and moves beyond Forer's earlier work. She defines symbolic action not in semiotic terms, but in efficacious terms. For Sharon, symbolic signifies that which bridges to realities, bridges to realities. This goes more back to some of the classical uses of the term symbolon within Christian religious discourse, for example. Um, symbol often very closely associated with sacrament. So bridging to realities, bringing them into relationship with one another. And in the case of biblical symbolic gestures or actions, she argues that the two realities that are being bridged are the visible uh, human world and the hidden 
existence, presence, intention, and actions of God, bridging those realities, bringing them into uh, direct and directly perceptible relationship so that symbolic actions would render uh, for Sharon abstract ideas like maybe covenant or commitment into concrete, visible form. She says these actions invoke the presence of the divine and they underscore dramatically the interplay between divine actuation and human action. So along with those anthropological insights of Jackson, the work of Erzberger and Sharon, I think, helps us to fill in some of the missing pieces in our understanding of prophetic praxis. It is often communicative and symbolic. It is also relational, interactive, entails personal vulnerability, compels engagement, bridges multiple realities. It is more than a supplement to a saying. It is a making, unmaking, giving, taking, and transforming. So as I mentioned, I propose that rather than symbolic action or sign act, we might be better served to use a more integrative category, such as embodied prophecy. And embodied prophecy would include speech and action. We know that speech is embodied, recognizing then the embodied nature of verbal communication, but not reducing prophetic action to those communicative purposes only. So let's now reconsider those examples we started with. That was a lot of theory. I know it's a little heady. Um, so let's, let's get back to Isaiah walking around. Isaiah walks naked and barefoot for three years. God's own explanation in this passage emphasizes the intense cultural shame of a man's exposing his bare backside. And we might compare the story in 2 Samuel 10, uh, parallel in 1 Chronicles 19, when the Ammonite prince Hanun seized David's envoys, shaved off half their beards to really emphasize that this was a violation, right? Leave one side intact, shave the other half, and tore their garments or cut them away to expose their buttocks. The shame associated, even with that loss of facial hair, and also with that exposure was so great that David told them, you know, do not go out in public until your beards have grown back. Do not return until you are able to return presenting according to the cultural scripts of honor. That insult was so great within this narrative as to incite a war. Imagine then the shame that Isaiah takes upon himself. This is not Berkeley, where when I first moved there, there was known to be a man who went about his day publicly naked, and that was a thing. Have you seen the naked guy? But this was not, <laughs> this was not Berkeley. And Isaiah took upon himself the consequences of the action God commanded. So will his friends and his acquaintances continue to engage him in daily conversation or commerce? Will they share meals and jokes with him? Or does he become now a social pariah, an embodiment of shame? Does he cut his feet on broken bits of pottery strewn in the street? Does he blister from the hot sun in the summer or shiver unprotected from the cold in the winter? Isaiah embodies the vulnerability of a war captive. His naked performance makes a future reality and a distant reality present 
to the senses in a visceral way that was meant to elicit a strong emotional response. Jeremiah's purchase of Hanamel's field was by definition transactional. It was also deeply personal. It positioned him as the go-ail, the redeemer of his family's claim. And that role bound him in obligation to his family, his community, and to the land. Just as Isaiah's nakedness made a future reality present, so did Jeremiah's act of redemption. It was not just Jeremiah who performed the action. The assembled parties of seller and witnesses each became complicit in this act of hope that did more than convey the message that people would one day buy and sell again in Judah and Benjamin. Each participant renewed their status as stakeholders in the ongoing folly of God's promise. Ezekiel's siege play positions the prophet as the attacker of Jerusalem and interposes an iron barrier between his face and the city model. It was a story the people around him had already lived through, and a people, uh, the people and himself had lived through. We know that that trauma is recorded in the cells of our body, not just somewhere up here in our brain, but in our whole bodies. How would this reenactment and, and this turning a reenactment into a kind of child's play have affected the audience and the prophet? And with this, with this iron barrier, we begin to see how Ezekiel must bear in his body isolation and alienation as he portrays and enacts divine judgment. And as he lies bound with cords, 390 days for Israel, 40 days for Judah, each day of his immobility embodies a year of the punishment of God's people. There was a time when I was pregnant and I had to be on magnesium sulfate for five weeks. I don't know if anyone knows much about that, but it's a, it's a smooth muscle relaxer. And if the dose is high enough, and my dose was high enough, you cannot move your muscles. You can't even coordinate your eye muscles well enough to read. But there were nurses who were really concerned that I not get bed sores. And so they would come in and they would, you know, they would have a sort of team and they would roll me over, right, to make sure that the weight of my hip bones and my body wasn't always pressing in the same place. That was just for five weeks. Ezekiel had to lay, first on one side, 390 days, bound with cords, with no nurses to figure out how to flip his body over. And for more than 14 months, lying on one side and then the other, Ezekiel bore in his body the guilt of generations, not to earn their freedom, not to atone for their sins, but to confront them with their future. When he was free to rise, he was then commanded to bear his arm and prophesy against them. The prophet's arm then embodied the royal might of God. Notice how in this sequence of actions, he's the attacker, he's the people, he's embodying God. Viewing these actions as embodied prophecy reveals them to be uh, 
not only communicative, but also relational, participatory, and efficacious. And it illuminates for us further embodied aspects of prophetic experience and vulnerability. So I want us to turn now to two types of prophetic actions that are not, um, are not typically considered sign acts. Uh, and they are equally, I would say, examples of embodied prophecy. Bless you. So healing and feeding. We considered uh, the most famous examples of prophetic healing on Monday in the stories of Elijah's restoring life breath to the son of the widow of Zarephath and Elisha's revivifying the son of the Shunammites. Other narratives also portray prophets as, uh, as healers. The first person to be named a prophet within the canonically ordered Hebrew Bible is Abraham. In Genesis 20, verse 7, he's so named not because he's going to deliver an oracle or a message from God to the human realm, not for his capacity to convey knowledge of God or reveal um, knowledge of the future or elicit obedience. In this particular narrative, which has to do with Abraham's encounter with Abimelech, king of Gerar, Abimelech has a dream. And God just speaks directly to him and tells him what's been going wrong, what was Abimelech's crime, what was the punishment that would be coming. And Abimelech's response is immediately to want to obey God. So we would think those would be the kinds of things that a prophet would be trying to do, persuade, reveal. That's not why Abraham is called a prophet in this narrative. He is so named because he will intercede through prayer. He will act as an intermediary to protect the lives of Abimelech and the members of his household. We're told Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech and also his wife and the female slaves that were members of that household so that they were able to bear children because we're told the Lord had closed fast all the birth canals of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. In this story, Abraham's prophetic action elicits and mediates divine healing that bodily transforms the people on whose behalf Abraham has prayed. The act of embodied prophecy literally opens a passage to life for a people who are not Israelite, are not Abraham's kin, and are not deprived of knowledge of God. Their embodied reception of Abraham's intercession brings about the possibility of a future for their people. Embodied prophecy can also extend to the provision of food and water, at times mediating divine providence sustenance and nurture of life, at times maybe performing a ritualized social action that seals a covenant, a promise, or a new relationship. And we have uh, the example of Samuel feeding Saul just before anointing him. And if you were to analyze the structure of the narrative there and, and the um, the actions involved, it begins with Samuel feeding Saul the portion set aside. And we would think that seems to symbolically represent Saul's role as king of Israel, or the portion may symbolically represent the people that God has chosen. Uh, Saul then sleeps. This is a practice in ancient religions that we refer to as incubation, sleeping to to welcome what the deity may say or do in, uh, in the course of the night or on the day that follows. What comes next is the mission of Saul. It tells us that Samuel sent Saul. Then Samuel said, I will make known to you the word of God. And then Samuel anoints Saul with oil and kisses him. So we see in this 
example that the prophetic, what we would focus on typically is this prophetic action of anointing, right? Uh, Frank Moorcross told us prophets are kingmakers. This is the, the classic prophetic action, but there's so much more happening here. And one of the things happening is this act of feeding. Remember that Moses made sweet the water of Marah. Moses strikes the rock to provide water in the wilderness. Elijah ensures that the widow's jar will always have flour and her jug will always have oil. These stories demonstrated and effected, made real, God's will to ensure the life of God's people and God's capacity to sustain life in the harshest conditions. The gospel writers found in these stories, as they did in the prophetic healing narratives, a model and a framework for interpreting the miracles of Jesus that both heralded and inaugurated, made present the kingdom of God. Now I want to tell you a story from the ancient Greek versions of Daniel. If, uh, if you don't know about me, Daniel is sort of my scholarly preoccupation in all its forms. And, uh, and I love the Greek versions of Daniel. So uh, in the Greek versions of Daniel, you have, you have some, some passages that aren't present in the Hebrew text. And pieces of those are probably familiar to you, whether from liturgy or stories. Um, so in this one particular section, it's introduced as a prophecy of Habakkuk. He's called Hambakum in the Greek, a prophecy of Habakkuk. And it highlights the ways that prophetic feeding links the bodies of God, prophet, and recipient. And in this story, Daniel finds himself in the lion's den a second time. They, they threw him in the den. He was there for six days. And there were seven lions. And every day prior to that, the lions had been given a couple humans and uh, a couple sheep to eat. And when they put Daniel in, they just got Daniel. So they thought for sure the lions were going to eat Daniel this time. And meanwhile, the prophet Habakkuk is in Judea. And he had been cooking. He had made stew and bread, and he had mixed some wine, and he was going to take it to the reapers in the field to bring them their dinner. And the angel of the Lord said to Habakkuk, you take that food that you have to Babylon, to Daniel in the lion's den. And Habakkuk said, I don't know any Babylon or Daniel. Um, I don't know anything about the lion's den. And so the angel of the Lord took him by the crown of his head and carried him by his hair with the speed of the wind and set him down in Babylon right over the den. And Habakkuk shouted, Daniel, Daniel, take the food that God has sent you. And Daniel responded, you have remembered me, O God, and have not forsaken those who love you. <laughs> 